This evening's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and that can be found on page 1145 of the Church Bibles. That's page 1145 in the Church Bibles, and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Thank you very much for reading, Lucy. Thank you, David, for leading us in prayer. Uh, For Chris very helpful, and for Ed too. Um, And good evening, yes. Allow me to pray um, before we just look at uh, those words, that um, that passage that Lucy has read to us. Father God, we love you because you first loved us And because we love you, we love to study your word, that we might know you better, that we might know how we might live to please you. Will you please help us now that we might understand the passage that has just been read and understand how you would want us to respond to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see... Bible's open. Um, I know it's quite tempting when the reading comes up on the screen uh, just to follow that, but um, I will be dipping into uh, chapter one, apart from that uh, reading we've had this evening. So it is helpful to have the Bible open. Um, Today's passage, uh, I think you can probably see there's a heading um, in our Bibles um, just above chapter 1, verse 18. And uh, today's passage is really the third uh, in a a theme which extends from chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were reminded, as we see in chapter 1, verse 18, that the message of the cross may seem to be weak and foolish. Those who are perishing have no doubt that it is weak and foolish. At least most of them do. For they have re- and they have rejected it for that very reason. It's so weak and so foolish to them, they've dismissed it as being incapable of being true. But not so for those who are being saved. For them, and I guess for most of us here this evening, it is true. It is the power of God. But not only is the message weak, foolish and generally unimpressive, 
But that is true also of many of the people God calls to receive and accept the message. We see that uh, in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which we uh, had last week. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And why did God choose the foolish and weak? As we read last week and heard last week, so that they would have no grounds for boasting about, their, about any worthiness on their part that, got, that caused God to choose them. They would only be able to boast in the Lord. And we saw that at the end of chapter 1, verse 30, 31. And Andrew's headline last week was, God, and I felt very much last week that I was a nobody, and I am a nobody. But Andrew's headline last week was, God chooses the nobodies that they might boast in the Lord. And today's passage begins with Paul acknowledging that in his eyes, he too was a nobody, even though God had called him for a special purpose. We see in uh, the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. As a reminder, in this early part of the letter, Paul is having a go, if that is the right expression, at the Christians in Corinth because of their lack of unity. The church is divided, not on account of different beliefs or doctrines, but because the people have aligned themselves with different leaders and teachers. And so a thrust of these verses from verse 18 through to chapter, five, uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 5, is that what matters is the message we proclaim, not the one who proclaims it. The church must be united behind the message, not divided by following different leaders. Even before his conversion, Paul would not have been viewed either by others or himself as a nobody. When he was young, he was sent to study under the famous rabbi Gamaliel, and through continuing his studies and education, he established a strong reputation for himself. For he was then authorised by the Jewish leaders to be someone who would go and persecute the Christians. He really had a reputation, a strong reputation. And after his conversion, his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road, he was far from being dismissed as someone of no significance. God spoke of him as my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And as he fulfilled that calling, he established many churches and he was looked up as a leader. Excuse me. And yet, despite this background, 
and his education and despite his knowledge and God's calling upon his life, Paul is aligning himself with the Christians at Corinth. It is only because of God that he is now in Christ, like all believers. He himself has no reason to boast other than in the Lord. Last week, Andrew reminded us that as a church, we are all about Jesus. You'll be reminded of that uh, as you pass the window outside, as you look at our website. Um, It should be clear from all that we do and teach, and uh, Ed referenced that earlier on. But I'm delighted to say that Paul was all about Jesus long before us. As we read his letters, we could pick out quite a few of his sayings that would have featured on whatever forerunner of a website he may have had. For me to live is Christ is an obvious one. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there is another one here in verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In these five verses, Paul speaks of how he proclaims and how he does not proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Firstly, he tells us three things that do not feature in the preaching of the message of Christ. I'd like to look at these quite quickly. Um, In verse 1, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. So Paul did not preach by eloquence. And then in verse 4, we look down to verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Now, being eloquent and using persuasive words are not quite the same, but they're sufficiently connected that I think we can look at them together to consider why Paul was rejecting them. Our first question is, did Paul actually lack eloquence? And if so, was he trying to defend himself? That's actually two questions, but uh, the first question... Was Paul an eloquent speaker? The evidence seems to suggest that Paul was nothing really special as a speaker. If you look at uh, the second letter to Corinthians, in chapter 10, verse 10, um, it is written, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person... He is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. And then uh, in the following chapter, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he writes, Paul writes, Paul writes, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker. And the very fact that some believers in the church here at Corinth were choosing to follow Apollos who clearly was an eloquent speaker, choosing to follow him in preference to Paul, is evidence that Paul was 
less impressive as a speaker than Apollos. But secondly, was Paul trying to defend himself? Was he arguing that his lack of eloquence didn't make him a less competent preacher than men like Apollos? And the answer to that is no, not at all. Surely he didn't mean to say that it was wrong for preachers to be eloquent. So what exactly was Paul getting about, getting at in saying, I, was not, I did not come to proclaim uh, the message of Christ by eloquence? If you look back at chapter 1, verse 17, where he gives the reason he would never preach wisdom uh, and eloquence... lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The American preacher and pastor John Piper has said, there is a way to preach, a way of eloquence or cleverness or human wisdom that nullifies the cross. He says we should dread nullifying the cross. And he continues... In trying to understand what Paul had in mind, he asked the question, is Paul suggesting that trying to impact your listener through your selection, through the words you use, through delivery of the words, preempts Christ's power and belittles the glory of the cross? He goes on to suggest there are two rules to follow to ensure that we avoid this pitfall which Paul himself was keen to avoid. And firstly, as we proclaim, as we preach, as we teach, we must be self-humiliating. If our eloquence feeds our boasting, and if our persuasive and clever words are means of promoting ourselves as being clever and important, then they can have no part in the proclamation of Christ as we've already seen in chapter 1, there are no grounds for boasting other than boasting in the Lord. And the second point John Piper makes is, alongside self-humiliating, we must be Christ-exalting. In our eloquence and in the use of our words, if we, like Paul, resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, then we must exhort Christ alongside humbling ourselves as we proclaim Christ. Another helpful quote I found as I was looking at and studying this was from from James Denny, who was a Scottish theologian, 19th century. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. He's making the same point as John Piper. Self-exaltation and Christ-exaltation cannot exist together. And the third thing which uh, does not feature in Paul's preaching the message of Christ um, is human wisdom. We see that again in verse 1, where Paul says, 
I come, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. We do not need to meddle with God's word by imposing our own wisdom. It can only distort and dilute God's truth. We've already seen in chapter 1 that human wisdom counts for nothing when it comes to the things of God. Chapter 1, verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So Paul, as he proclaimed Christ, he did not speak eloquently or use wise and persuasive words or human wisdom. But alongside these three negatives, Paul mentions two positives. In verse 3, he came in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul does not expand on this, and so we cannot be certain what he was referring to by talking about his weakness, what was causing him to be, to be weak. Uh, he'd, before coming to Corinth, he'd been uh, in Philippi, where he'd been beaten and imprisoned. He'd been in Thessalonica, Berea and Athens, where he'd encountered opposition. So he may well have been physically weak at this point. But he may well have been emotionally weak as well and fearful because of the seriousness of his mission. And preachers can take comfort in the fact that even Paul experienced great fear and trembling. And so it should be when we have this responsibility and take this responsibility of proclaiming God's word. So it's right that we recognise our own weakness and frailty when we come to proclaim Christ. We then acknowledge our dependence upon God and of our need of his power and his strength. And God's power is the second thing that Paul mentions. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And then in verse 5, Paul explains why he preaches how he does. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul was determined that those who professed faith as a result of his preaching would do so on account of God's power alone. It was Paul's task, and it must be the task of everyone who would proclaim Christ to present the gospel faithfully and simply and to leave the Holy Spirit the task of convicting the hearer of their need of Christ as saviour and of their need of repentance. Would you mind if I was to hit the pause button for the moment? Um, so I'm not going anywhere, but before I conclude, I'd like to... Uh, share very briefly something about Chris. At this point, all the Chris's here get a bit of worried. But Chris, I'm referring to, was and still is 
a Welsh rugby fanatic with the not-so-unusual surname in Wales of Jones. Could have been Evans, but Jones. In his youth, he was selected for the national squads uh, at under 15 and under 18 in rugby. There seemed to be only one thing that would prevent him from becoming a full international. That one thing, and it doesn't apply to all Welsh rugby players, was but he was a particularly dirty player. Uh, he would often get sent off and banned. It really amounted to quite serious violence. They become, became so obsessed with his reputation that almost in every game he longed most of all to live up to his reputation rather than to concentrate on helping his team to win the match. Eventually he was given a life ban by the Welsh Rugby Union. But he won an appeal against this ban only to be given a second life ban a few months later. He continued his violent behaviour off the rugby field and got arrested at a jazz festival, charged with violent disorder and with wounding with intent. In the police cell that night, after pacing up and down the cell for quite some time, wondering how he would ever get out of this mess, he uttered the words, God help me. Just as many people do when they're desperate and have run out of all other options. Chris was not necessarily addressing God because he wasn't even sure whether he believed that there was a God. But a few minutes later, he did address God. If you are there, God, please help me. And if you do, I will follow you. And how many people try to bribe God with a prayer like that? But it seems that God did help him. He was resigned to the fact that he would be in Swansea jail the following day and the custody sergeant was absolutely convinced about that. But remarkably, the following morning, he was released on bail. Unlike most who make a promise to God as he had, Chris remembered what he'd said. Uh, it wasn't a Sunday, so he couldn't go to church. Instead, he popped round to his local vicar, who was very helpful, invited him to church next Sunday, gave him a Bible, and recommended that he read the Gospels. He did. He read the four Gospels, and to use his own words, he was blown away by what he read concerning Jesus. He had known nothing about Jesus before then. Uh, his only previous concept of Jesus had been, on, had been the images on Christmas cards. He'd seen plenty of those, but knew nothing else. Christ gave his life to Christ. There had been no gospel presentation, no gospel tract thrust into his hand, no powerful testimony, no preacher, no evangelist, no course, no reading one-to-one -one with a Christian friend. Just God's power and God's word. And I apologise for using the word just. If you know me, you'll understand that I'm not decrying in any way 
anything that we've said in the spotlights. I fully recognise the value, all the courses we do and all the contacts we have, the events that we have, the gospel events we have. But I just want to make the point that we must never underestimate the power of God's word. Um, Often, usually, God delights to use us alongside his word. And that's great. But he doesn't always do that, and he doesn't need to, because there is just so much power in God's word. And so let us remember that it's no trivial thing to pass a John's Gospel to a friend uh, and encourage them to read it. But back to our passage, a a reminder of those do-nots and do's from Paul. Let us proclaim Christ, not by eloquence or persuasive words or human wisdom, but in weakness and in God's power. I think we can take away a warning and an encouragement from this, uh, these, just these five verses. First, the warning. Those who preach and teach must take great care to avoid anything that would seek to exalt themselves alongside Christ. We must avoid anything in the way of eloquence or lofty speech or persuasive words that would attract our hearers to us rather than to God's word and his wisdom. We must teach God's word pure and simple and proclaim the message of the cross pure and simple. God's word is all-sufficient and all-powerful to draw men and women to himself. Let us not confuse the message with a touch of human wisdom for it will only minimise God's power. And as the messenger, we must never allow ourselves to get in the way of the message. And for all of us, the warning must be to steer clear of following those teachers and preachers who fail to be Christ-exalting in their eloquence and in the use of their words. It's easy to attach ourselves via the internet or the media to the gifted teacher who has 50,000 followers, heads up a staff team of 30, would never contemplate teaching to a congregation or conference of less than 2,000, has his own personal teaching ministry alongside his role as a head pastor and possibly has five gorgeous children uh, and, yes, a wife. I'm not suggesting, of course, that big is bad, There are many teachers, such as I've described, who are Christ-exalting and self-humiliating in their eloquence and in their manner of presenting the gospel. But we need to take great care and discernment, ensuring that it is the faithful teaching that attracts us and not the teacher. And secondly, the encouragement I think we can take from these uh, these few verses. All who know and understand the message of the cross and who live by it are capable of proclaiming it. We do not need to be gifted and eloquent speakers 
for all the power is in the message. Yes, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our only need is to recognise our weakness. Before I close with prayer, can I just leave a, a suggestion with you? As we focused on the message of the cross and of Christ crucified over these three weeks, I've been stirred to look forward to Easter and I'm really frustrated it's later this year. And we have to wait until the 2nd of March, even for the beginning of Lent, during which many of us take time to use scripture readings to focus our thoughts on the cross. Why not pretend that Lent begins in February? Have an extra 20 days of asking God to give you a fresh awareness of all that Christ suffered in order to save us from God's wrath. For me, Lent started two weeks ago. But if we do this, um, we don't need to wait for the, this year's Lent books to come out, the must-reads. We can dip into those that we didn't quite finish last year or the year before, or those we didn't even get managed to start. Um, and it would actually tie in with our morning series, which we started this morning in Luke, as we're looking forward, as we're looking, uh, following that journey of Jesus to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. Just a thought that as we look forward uh, to that cross at Easter, it'd be wonderful over these next few weeks to really focus uh, and ask the Lord to show us afresh all that Christ suffered that we might, um, we might have life in him. Let me pray. Father God, may we never lose the wonder of the cross and of Christ crucified. May we never cease to praise you for allowing Jesus to surrender his life to reconcile us with you. And may we never lose the burden for loved ones for whom the message of the cross is foolishness or of, of those who have never heard the message of the cross. Please enable us in our weakness but with your power to proclaim Christ crucified within our families and amongst our friends. And please grant us the joy of seeing you at work in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.